Good morning. I'm glad you're here with us today. For those joining us online, you're welcome as well, especially those in Morocco and in Portugal. Those would be my kids. My name is not Sean, and I am not one of the pastors here. But you're okay, because Sean and I read the same book, and we serve the same king. I've been teaching the men's Bible study group, which has been a great group. You may have seen me around. I often sit over here with my wife on this side. One of the reasons I sit over there is I had to wear an eye patch on my left eye for 10 months. I could only see from my right, and I wanted to see Sean while he was preaching. I like looking at Sean while he's preaching, not because he's so much to look at, but because there's an interesting phenomenon that happens from that perspective. From over here, when you're looking at this speaker, well, guess what I saw? To look at Sean is to look at the cross. If I was so bold as to get up while he was speaking and to move toward Sean, I'd be moving toward the cross. He was perfectly in line. And I'm not sure if Donna's wife would agree that he's always perfectly in line. But from that vantage point, it was so cool to look at Sean and to see the cross of Christ, which is essentially our symbol reminding us of what Jesus Christ did on our behalf. This was, this was God's plan to bring us back into the fellowship for which he created us. We get to enjoy him forever because of that sacrifice. And like all of our services here at MCC, the service will conclude with communion, and in the Lord's Supper, Christians remember the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on our behalf. So we're going to point toward the cross as well. You may say, well, um, that's a big thing for, for Sean as a pastor to, to kind of point people to the cross, and he does just that, but he does so following the example of Paul the Apostle. For in the Bible, we read that Paul wrote, follow me as I follow Christ. He's essentially saying, if you move my direction, you'll be growing closer to Jesus Christ. Wow, what a big responsibility, but it's the same responsibility for every Christian. We all, as followers of Christ, are responsible to follow Christ in a way that leads others to follow. For leadership is influence. You lead with your life, and makes me ask the question, which way are you headed? Because if we deviate, then so also might those who are emulating our example. Let me illustrate. Imagine, if you will, that Portland is where you need to be. Portland, Oregon is, spiritually speaking, your destination, and you need to go directly to Portland right now. Now, it takes a lot of imagination to picture Portland that way, but picture Portland is the way, the truth, and the life, okay? So if I say, follow me, and I lead you straight to Portland. We come out of the church parking lot, head into town, and if I turn right on 99, now we're headed southbound, 180 degrees in the opposite direction from Portland. You may like Corvallis, you may like Eugene, you may even like Roseburg or Medford, but we're going the wrong direction. So imagine I make the first turn right, but I'm going left, and now I'm going northbound 99. Okay, good so far, but as I approach Highway 22, I think, you know, Let's go to the beach. I like Lincoln City. It's fun to play in the water. Pacific City, no, those are nice, but they're not where you need to be. If I turn right on 22, now I'm going east, I'm going to take you to Sisters. I like the place. Bend has good food. But again, if we deviate, we're not on the straight and narrow. For the Apostle Paul, there was no deviation, no wrong turns. 
He didn't, go, he didn't go right. He didn't go left. It was always straight and true. And he wanted everybody following him to move closer and closer and closer to Jesus Christ. And that, that is a, a, a wonderful reality for us. He wrote, I preach Christ crucified. I preach Christ crucified. Here, Paul the Apostle, essentially the, the architect of New Testament theology, he wrote 13 of the 27 New Testament books, 11, or excuse me, um, uh, nine to churches giving instructions, chapter after chapter of how to come and know Jesus Christ and grow in Jesus Christ. Four more to individuals, church leaders, training them to lead others to follow Christ. All those chapters, all that instruction, how is it summarized? It's all about what Jesus Christ did in the cross. What do we preach? We preach Jesus Christ crucified. That is the content of Christianity. That's what it's all about. So if we think today, if that's what it's all about, let's consider what Jesus did there on the cross and how it affects us. The day that Jesus died began with Jesus and his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus was there agonizing in prayer in anticipation of bearing the sin of all people. And the point was for his best friends, the disciples, to stay alert, aware, awake with him, supporting him socially, emotionally, and spiritually. But no, they dozed, they slept, all except for one. For Judas had arranged for 30 pieces of silver to betray Jesus. He showed up later to the garden leading a cohort of Roman soldiers who were armed with clubs and had, had torches, also temple guards. Judas betrayed Jesus, identifying him with a kiss. Peter awoke and responded as impetuous Peter would normally respond, as we read about in Scripture. He was a go-getter. He pulled out a sword and lashed out and probably missed his intention and only hit the ear of Malchus, the high priest's servant. Jesus said, we're not doing it that way. The scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus was arrested and dragged away. Every one of the disciples fled. They all abandoned him. Alone, he was taken into the, the first phase of the Jewish trial. There were really two types of trials that he went through, a religious trial and a civic or Roman trial. They each had three phases. Phase one of the Jewish trial was before Annas, who was the high priest emeritus. And Jesus simply said when he was questioned that everything he had taught was in public and well-known. Annas then handed Jesus off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who was the reigning high priest at that time. Uh, Caiaphas had many false witnesses there, and their testimony did not corroborate, did not complement one another. Instead, they contradicted. But when Jesus was asked about his identity, he quoted clear messianic prophecy saying, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds. Well, Caiaphas understood that from the scriptures to be a clear statement of his messianic identity. So he did what people did in those days to express anguish. He was appalled. He tore his garments. So we don't do that in our culture, but next time you're about to engage in some road rage, just tear your sweatshirt. So that, that's what he did. And uh, he said, what need do we have for more, for more witnesses? We have heard blasphemy. Here we have a man making himself out to be God. Now, Jesus possessed 
human nature and if a person who is merely human to claim divinity is in fact the worst of all blasphemy. But he also possessed divine nature and for someone who possesses divine nature to claim divinity is not blasphemy but they were not open, they had a hard hearts. That all took place while it was still dark. They had to wait until the Sanhedrin, the ruling 70, could, could convene. The council couldn't get together until dawn. So there was a, a time period where Jesus was horribly mistreated. He was, he was mocked. He was beaten. They pulled hair out of his beard. They'd blindfold him, and, a, and someone would punch him and then say, prophesy, who punched you? Horrible, horrible mistreatment. John the Apostle kind of had an in with some of the guards and got Peter into the central courtyard. It said that Peter had been following at a distance. I always stop when I read that. Following at a distance. How many years of my life were wasted when I followed Jesus at a distance? But Peter was warming himself by a fire there in the courtyard. And a servant girl said, hey, weren't you with them as well? And then someone else said, aren't you a follower of Jesus? He denied it. They persisted. So did he, denying it again, even with an oath, even swearing. They recognized his Galilean accent. He was a northerner. Certainly you weren't the disciples. I absolutely was not, he said. And he heard a rooster crow, which Jesus had said as a prophecy would happen. Peter recognized that, and the scripture says he went out and wept bitterly. The third phase of the Jewish trial was when the Sanhedrin was convened, the ruling council. Jesus was brought before them. Again, they clearly heard him declaring to be Messiah. They did not at that time have the authority to carry out capital punishment by crucifixion. That was a Roman thing. So from there, he was sent to the first of the three phases of the Roman trial, and he first saw a man named Pilate. Pilate was the Roman governor. And Pilate engaged in quite a conversation with Jesus and asked him, among other things, so then, are you the, the king? And he said, I am, but my kingdom is not of this world. I've come to bear testimony of the truth. And that led Peter to utter his famous and oft-quoted reply, what is truth? Which kind of seems like a theme song of our culture these days. Now, Pilate actually didn't want anything to do with Jesus, uh, for a couple reasons. One is that his job was in trouble. His career was at stake because there had been some uprisings and he was in trouble with his bosses in Rome with the emperor. So he wanted to kind of just settle this thing down. Uh, second reason is that his wife was warned supernaturally in a dream that Jesus was innocent. And he told, she told him, I have nothing to do with this innocent man. So he realized that since the ministry of Jesus began up north in Galilee, that he could kind of to pass off G Jesus to Herod. It was Herod's jurisdiction in Galilee, and Herod was in town uh, that time for the Passover. So he sent Jesus to Herod, which is the second of those three phases of the, of, uh, of the Roman trial. And Herod, it says in Scripture, was basically just looking for a show. He kind of thought of Jesus as a magician. Jesus wouldn't play that game and answered him nothing. The guards there took advantage of Jesus, again, beating him, mocking him. They put a, 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 a Roman, a, I mean, a purple robe upon him, uh, kind, of, kind of saying, oh, you're royalty, and, and smashed a crown of thorns upon his head, and then sent him back to Pilate. Um, at this point, a lot of people around, there was some interaction between Pilate and the people. Uh, Shall I crucify your king? 
he called out. The people said, we have no king but, but Caesar. And uh, Pilate wanted to let him go. And they said, if you let him go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Paul, it, the scripture says that, P, that, P, that Pilate was afraid of the people. And because of that, he only had one more option. That is that the custom was to release one prisoner at the time of Passover. Scripture says that Jewish elders circulate among the crowd, kind of inciting people to call out for the release of a noted uh, insurrectionist and murderer named Barabbas. And so they did. Uh, Pilate saw where they was going and, and called for a bowl of water and washed his hands as if to cleanse himself of culpability. He released Barabbas and, and, uh, and sentenced Jesus to crucifixion. Uh, during that time, Jesus was also whipped. He was, he was scourged, and the whips they used in those days had a single handle but several ends, and little pieces of bone and, and metal were tied to them so that when a man was, man was whipped with those multiple times, it would so lacerate that sometimes even bone would show. And historical documents indicate that many people who were scourged before crucifixion were actually killed by the scourging before they were ever even crucified. So Jesus was in very bad shape, having been beaten and scourged, and they had him initially carry his own crossbeam through those narrow streets on the way to Calvary, and faces were jeering at him and mocking him with anger, calling out to him. Those same voices just a week earlier on Palm Sunday had said, Hosanna, Hosanna, you know, here comes the king, certainly the Messiah who will overthrow Roman occupation. But they weren't the Messiah he was looking for. He didn't come as a political Messiah, but as a personal Messiah to save not from Rome, but from sin. And this was the wild way he was doing it. As he stumbled under that crossbeam, the soldiers grabbed a man from the, the crowd and had him carry the cross the rest of the way up to the top of Calvary to a mound called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There Jesus was crucified along with two thieves. They pounded big spikes through their hands and feet. And the only way Jesus could breathe would be to push against that spike in his feet. And, and his lacerated back would agonizingly rub against that rough-hewn timber of the cross. The time on the cross began around nine and ended about three. Jesus said seven things recorded in the gospel accounts during that time. The first thing he said gives you a beautiful picture of his compassion and the grace of God. While hanging there in absolute mortal agony, he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. The second thing he said, he said to one of the thieves. Now, initially, both of the thieves were mocking Jesus. They were saying the same sort of things the crowd was saying. If you're really a miracle worker, then bring yourself down from the cross, and so on. But then one thief had a change of heart, addressed the other thief, and said, wait, we've, we've been justifiably condemned. We're guilty, but he's innocent. Don't you fear God? And then he addressed Jesus, saying, Jesus, will you remember me when you come into your kingdom? which shows incredible faith because he's saying that to a man who's obviously dying. He certainly didn't look like a king at that point, but the man was given incredible faith. Jesus responded to that faith by saying, today I say to you that you will be with me in paradise. The third thing Jesus said from the cross was addressed to his mother and his beloved disciple John. The crowd was mixed. There were Jewish 
authorities, Roman soldiers, curiosity seekers, and a small band off to the side of his followers who were just heartbroken. There he entrusted his mother into John's care and entrusted John to his mother. The fourth thing he said was just after noon when a supernatural darkness came over the area and Jesus cried out in anguish, quoting from Psalm 22 about his feelings of abandonment as he, the scriptures tell us, actually became sin on our behalf, bearing the full weight and penalty. The next thing he said was anticipation of the last two things he said. He said, I thirst. He wanted to wet his lips so he could call out the next phrase loud. And he did. Once, his, once he had a little bit of, of wine on his tongue and he could speak loud, he said, Testelestai, a single word which in your translation says, It is finished. But Testelestai was actually a common word in those days. It, archaeologists seen it, see it printed on on receipts where it said it means paid in full. His mission was finished. It wasn't just his life was finished, though it was as well, his life here on earth. For the last thing he said was, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he breathed his last, for it was paid in full. There's an old saying that he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. At that time, incredible signs took place. The earth shook, rocks cracked, and the giant thick curtain hanging in the temple was torn from top to bottom, it says in Scripture, not from bottom to top, as if humanity barged its way into the presence of God on its own merit. No. That curtain separating the Holy of Holies from the presence of the people was torn from top to bottom, giving us free access. That's what happened on the cross. It gives us access before God the Father. Now, Pastor Sean's been teaching through the book of Hebrews, and in three or four years, when he gets to chapter 10, you're going to find a couple great verses, beginning about verse 19, that gives you the significance of that temple being torn at the very moment that Jesus died, giving us all access into the very presence of God. You see, in those days, only one person and only one time a year could anyone go in behind that veil, behind that curtain. It would be the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And even then, he'd have little bells on the tassels of his garment and a rope around his waist, and he'd go in there, and if the bells stop making noise, that means he's not moving, and he's struck dead, people guess, and they'd drag him back out, okay? So no confidence, and yet that passage in Hebrews says, here's the confidence we have to enter in now to the presence of God through the veil, through that curtain that was torn at the time that Christ died. What an amazing thing to think, not only of what Jesus did on that cross, but the impact it has for us. The Old Testament and the New Testament agree concerning how that affects us. In Isaiah, the Old Testament prophecy refers to Messiah and says, he was pierced for our transgressions, not for his, he didn't have any. The New Testament agrees in 1 Corinthians and many, many other places, it says he died for our sins. He took our Place. Not for his sins, he didn't have any. He was the perfect spotless lamb, the sacrifice, the Passover sacrifice. In fact, scriptures say he is our Passover. 
of the many verses that talk about the significance of Christ's sacrifice, the one in 1 Peter really grabs me. It's a little phrase that says, he bore our sins in his body on the cross. He bore my, where are my sins? All of my sins are in one of two places. Either I'm bearing them into eternity, or they were nailed to the cross of Christ, one or the other. Now, I used to have a lot of people come into my office for counseling, and sometimes I'd discern more than counseling is needed in this situation. I just sense God leading me to point that person more clearly to the cross, what happened there and what it means to us. So I'd grab a couple pieces of paper off the copier and I'd have some scissors and I'd start cutting out uh, a little craft project essentially. And people might think, well, this kind of puts me at ease that pastor's a normal dude, but what's he gonna do next, start knitting? I mean, anyway, I'd, I'd cut out a cross, a big cross. And I'd stand up from my desk and I'd walk over and sit on another of the chairs in my office and begin talking about the very things we've been talking about, what happened there, what it means to us. Meanwhile, I'd be on a second piece of paper and I'd cut out a big S and I'd hold that up and I'd say, you know, people don't like the word sin anymore. It's a very unpopular word. We don't want to take responsibility for our actions. We don't believe there's any connection between cause and effect. We don't believe there's any such thing as propositional truth. We don't believe there's anything such as normative behavior. We believe that everything is relative and I'm pretty cool and I don't care about you. <laughs> That's, that's, the, that's the way of our day. But in fact, sin in the scripture just refers to all the ways in which we fall short of God. Now you say, well, I think God is pretty good and I'm pretty good too and everything's fine. Recognize that God is perfectly holy. If the standard is that high, none of us, if it's like jumping to the moon, we can't do it. We all have to admit we, we, we need someone to help us. We need a savior. In fact, the scriptures say that all of sin, all have fallen short of the glory of God. And I put the S on my own chest and say, there was a time when I knew I was bearing all my sin and I would bear it into eternity. And I would face the Father who not only is perfectly loving, but he's also perfectly just. I let phrase, he's not just a loving God. He is a just loving God. And if he's holy and I'm not, I'll be in trouble if I start plea bargaining, right? I don't want to carry that S. If I know that Jesus died for my sins, that he bore my sins and in his body on the cross, well, I'd get up from my desk and I'd go put that S right at the top of the cross. And I said, that's where my sin is right now. I don't bear it anymore. The, the guilt is gone. The shame is gone. And then I'd do something else that's a little risky. I'd take that S up and I'd go and hand it to the person who was in my office. And I'd say, where do you want your sin to be? Now you may say at this point, I am so glad I wasn't in your church and you weren't my pastor. That's just a little pushy. <laughs> but you know, I'd only do this when I really felt led, this person may be bearing their own sin still. They may be trusting in what they've done to be accepted before a holy God rather than what Jesus has done. They may be trusting in their own righteousness rather than righteousness of Christ. They may be relying on their own accomplishments to make them right rather than the single accomplishment, the finished work of Christ on the cross. And how wonderful it was when people would say, no, I... I absolutely, once and for all, trust that Jesus bore my sin. I'm going to trust in what he did for me for salvation. Go over and put that S on top of the cross. Now, some of you would say, uh, I'm no sinner. I don't, I don't need that. I don't need that. There's a wonderful text in the book of 1 John. Chapter 1 only has 10 verses. 
In verse 8, John says, if we say we're without sin, we're liars. We're lying to ourselves. But, verse 9, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Which is amazing. To be clean and free and pure because of what he did. And in case we start feeling self-righteous again, the repetition, again, the next verse, verse 10 says, and not only are we lying to ourselves, but if we say we have not sinned, we're actually lying to God as well. Now, how does this whole forgiveness thing happen? The next two verses explain it. Actually, there's a chapter break, verses one and verses two of chapter two. In verse one, John writes, my beloved children, I've written these things to you that we may not sin, but knowing we will, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And verse 2 says, and he's the propitiation for our sins. Now, weird words, advocate, propitiation. What he's saying is that we're, we're going to sin. We just talked about the fact that if we say we haven't, we're lying and making God a liar. So what do we do with that? Well, it says that Jesus is our advocate. That word, that word there's kind of three, three ideas behind it. One, it literally means one who's called alongside. It was used as an, as an attorney. And basically it also means a friend. Someone who's called alongside to speak on your behalf. So when you become before the Father, when you're in Christ, Jesus is there speaking on your behalf as your advocate. And you know what he says? He says, to telestai, paid in full. This one is on me. Now how'd that work? Next verse says that he himself is the payment for sin. 1 John 2, 2. It's like you go to lunch and you're wondering, who's going to pick up the tab this time? You're kind of wondering, should I pull my wallet? Wait, is the guy moving for his wallet or not? You know? and, and then if your friend pulls out the wallet and says, this one's on me. Whew. Freedom. Right? See, when Jesus was there, what he basically said is, this one's on me. Paid in full. Again, I'll, I'll, I'll say that old saying. He paid a debt he couldn't he paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. As I mentioned earlier, that this whole service, like all the services at, at MCC, concludes with our celebration of communion. In the Lord's Supper, Christians remember the significance of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for our behalf. And there's a several places in Scripture that describe what took place on that night that Jesus was betrayed in the Last Supper when he instituted this ordinance of the Lord's Supper, communion, that Christians in, on every continent, in every culture, in every century have been commemorating ever since. But probably the most significant, most definitive of all the places where communion is described, we see is, is in 1 Corinthians 11. And in a moment, we're going we're to sing two more songs, and then I'll come up and lead us in our reception of the communion elements. And when I do, it's a natural thing for me to quote from those verses and say, in the night in which Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And having given thanks, he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, in the same way, he took a cup and said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And it usually kind of stops there, but the next verses are a little startling. Read them with me as they're on the screen here. This is where the text goes next. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner 
will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Wow, that's heavy. Unworthy, uh, guilty. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Those are very heavy verses, and I think they're neglected. And I think I misunderstood them for a long time. I think many people do even today. Because what it's talking about is a self-examination that is, you know, to, to prohibit us from taking communion in an unworthy manner. And I think what a lot of people do is they read that and say, well, then I've got to look within and somehow pump myself up to be worthy. I've got to make myself worthy of receiving communion. I, I gotta, I've got to say I don't have any sin. You know, I've got to say, well, oh, gee, I haven't sinned. I don't need what Jesus did in the cross. I guess I'm worthy to receive communion. <laughs> Do you see how that's completely backwards? It's a complete opposite idea. When we engage in this spiritual introspection, this self-examination that the text refers to concerning our worthiness, what we're not looking for is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness does not qualify us to receive communion. Self-righteousness disqualifies us. What we're looking for is not to say, I don't have any sin this week, so I'm worthy to receive communion. It's to say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's the worthy heart. The worthy heart looks at that cross and says, I need what you did for me, Jesus. I am so desperate for the forgiveness that you provide. Thank you that you bore my sin on the cross that day. So we've talked about what happened the day Jesus died and the significance for us. We're headed toward a time of celebrating that as we receive the bread and the cup.